Good evening, everybody. This week, we are taking a breath in between our last sermon series that we wrapped up last week on the, bur on the book of 1 Peter and our main series for the rest of the summer that we're going to be in, which is called More Stories We Tell. Um, in this coming series, we're going to be looking at what we might think of as kind of Sunday school stories or the legends of the Bible. We did a series about this two years ago during the summer. It was called Stories We Tell, hence the really creative renaming that we've done here by just adding the word more um, when we do this again. But the, the point of the series, we're going to be looking at what we can take from these stories from Scripture of miracles and kings and conflicts and heroes. Um, if we do a bit of a deeper dive with them than they usually get, looking not just uh, at what happens in the stories, but looking at them in terms of what they reveal to us about who God is and who we are and how we're supposed to live in God's world. We have some exciting things lined up. I'm really excited about this series um, from the story of creation, which somehow we didn't cover the first time we did this. Kind of funny that we missed like the very first thing. Um, and a story of a man wrestling with an angel and a legend about Jesus that the first gospel accounts um, didn't include. And all that to say that I think the next eight weeks are going to be a fun time. But as for this evening, what we're doing is we're pausing to look more closely, not at a story, what we'll be doing, but instead looking more closely at a song. In fact, a particular song, right? A psalm, Psalm 50. Now, there's a lot going on in Psalm 50, but I think the best way for us to start is with a question, which is both on the mind of the poet or the psalmist who wrote the psalm, and perhaps on our minds too, as we keep moving forward in our return to holding regular church services. And the question is this. The question is, what is worship? What is worship? And the answer, I have come to believe, is mindfulness. Mindfulness. Many years ago, when I first moved to Maryland, in fact, I was teaching at a local high school, and I was playing in the worship band here at Revolution, and I was invited by Matt Murphy to go with him to the Pennsylvania Christian Teen Conference, or PCTC. And the big reason um, I later found out is because Matt was in charge of making sure people could come, and he could save a lot of money on the expense for a band if he just brought his friends to do it. Um, so that was, that was maybe one reason. But the big reason I think that that Matt wanted me to go along is because he wanted me to play with him and with Sarah, I think, was there that time in this worship band that was helping with middle school. But there was another reason, like a, si a side reason that was a part of the, the assignment, and it was a little bit more unexpected. And that was because Matt wanted me to do a talk with him during one of the sort of breakout sessions that the, the teens would go to on the topic of Christian music. On the topic of Christian music. And I have to tell you, I had opinions. I had opinions. As somebody who grew up in the church, which I've talked about, I'd spent my whole life listening to Christian rock bands. I'd even played in a couple Christian rock bands. And here is the thing about Christian rock bands that you may or may not know. They are terrible. They're terrible. The music is cliche. The words are clunky. And most of the time, I feel um, 
like basically kind of embarrassed if anybody finds out that I even know about them. Like if I hear the name of a Christian rock band, I try not to show any reaction that I recognize those words so that no one suspects anything. So all that to say, when Matt and I began to plan our talk on Christian music, we had this bit of a rocky starting point, right? What are we supposed to say about Christian music to Christian teens at a Christian teen conference where a big-time Christian rock band is, in fact, playing on the main stage every night for everybody? And in the end, what, what we came up with was this. The real problem, the real problem with Christian music isn't that it's particularly bad music. The problem with Christian music a lot of times is that it tends to be mindless. It tends to be mindless. Here's what happens, I think. I think well-meaning parents and well-meaning musicians see a problem in the world, which is that their kids or kids that they know are listening to secular bands because those bands are cool or because the beats are good, but they're not paying any attention to what the songs those artists are singing are about. And as a result, these kids are absorbing these ideas about the world that have the capacity to do them real harm. But in response to this problem, in response to this problem, Christian parents and Christian bands tend to just flip the script for everybody. In effect, saying to these kids, look, if you're going to be mindless and mindlessly consume propaganda that shapes your choices in the world, then it would be better if the propaganda that you were mindlessly consuming was Christian. But what needs to happen, what Matt and I tried to teach at this conference, is that kids, whether they are Christian or not, need to learn instead to be mindful they need to be taught to listen and to think, to look for truth in the art that they experience and to bring all of this into the light through conversations with adults and conversations with each other. This pitch, if you're wondering, <laughs> did not go over well. <laughs> did not. I wouldn't say that Matt and I were chased out of the conference um, by these teens' youth pastors, but I would say that what happened was not far from being chased out by these youth pastors. And I bring all of this up, I bring all this up because it seems to me that Psalm 50 is getting at a similar problem in the worship habits and in the rituals of the ancient Israelites. Whether they are devout followers of God, or whether they are people who the psalmist comes to call the wicked, they have become mindless in their worship. But worship is mindfulness. Let's look at the psalm together. It begins like this. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. God shows up in the beginning of this psalm in all of his like hardcore metal concert 
glory, right? A devouring fire before him, storm clouds swirling all around him, and he shows up in order to judge his people. And it's important to remember that the psalmist here, this is really important as we talk about the whole thing, right? It's important to remember that the psalmist is not reporting something to anybody. What the psalmist is doing is singing it. He's saying to people, imagine, imagine the great revelation of God among us. What would that look like if it were to happen? What would it sound like for God to reveal himself amidst us? What would God then be revealing himself for? What would his purpose be? What would draw him to do that? And the answer, the psalmist says, is to bring justice, which is something that flows out from God's nature as the creator of all things. And I think that makes some degree of sense, right? If God made everything, then when he shows up, He's going to set things back to their intent. This is a borderline sacrilegious metaphor. I checked it with some people, and no one told me it wasn't borderline sacrilegious, so I'm doing this cautiously. But here's the illustration, right? Imagine that you have a giant model train set in your basement, right? And you work on it all the time, and it's your hobby, and you play with it, and you're proud of it. And you know every detail of this model train set. When you head down to look at it, you know what it's supposed to be like, the way that you left it, right? So if something has fallen down when you go downstairs, you will stand that thing back up. If something has been moved, you will put the thing back to rights where it belongs. And I think that, like I said, maybe a little sacrilegious, but that is in a, in a sense what we're imagining here, what the psalmist is imagining here, at least in part. God is coming down to straighten out and straighten up his creation, to make it look the way that he means for it to look. So that's the scenario. God in fire, storm clouds around him, comes down to set things to rights. So what happens next in the psalm, right? Well, God says this. He says, listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. So this is already bad, right? Already God is unhappy. He goes on to say, I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. And this is important. This is our first kind of clue that something is is curious here because God's not mad at us because we haven't been doing the religious things that we're supposed to be doing. The priests, it would seem, are doing their thing. They're doing priest work. The people are doing their thing. They're offering sacrifices on the regular as they've been instructed to do. And yet, even though everybody's doing what they're supposed to, God's bringing a charge against them for something. So what is it? What's the charge? God continues... I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls 
or drink the blood of goats? I left that in basically just because I really like it and it amuses me to read it. There's, I'm not teaching anything about it. I just thought that it's, it's great. I love it. I love that there's this reminder in the psalm that God does not need anything from anybody. He doesn't need anything from us. So the question isn't what does God need from us. The question is what does God want? What does he want? And in verse 14, God says, Offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Fulfill your vows. Call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. So here's the situation Right? God is here. God is upset with his people. But it's not because his people have abandoned the rituals they're supposed to be doing. It's because they're not thankful. And because they're not calling on God when they're in trouble. Which I think should lead us to ask, what are the rituals for then? What are they for? What's happening when the people offer sacrifices on the ancient altars in accordance with the covenantal traditions? What are their prayers? They're still doing it. They're still doing what they're supposed to be doing. But what are they thinking about? What does it mean to them to be doing it? The complaint that the psalmist has with his fellow Israelites is that they are just going through the motions, right? They show up for festivals, they pay their dues, they go through the rituals, but in their hearts, they have detached the details of their lives from any real and active relationship with their God. They don't thank him. They don't cry out to him when they're angry at him. They aren't mindful of him. They don't worship. They're, they've just traded the bad propaganda for the good propaganda. And God, who needs nothing from us, who needs nothing from us, is grieved by that exchange. The God whose love and grace are apparent, as verse 1 points out, when he makes the sun rise and the sun set, that God, whose love and grace are apparent to everybody all the time, is being ignored. The ritual the people seem to believe is enough. Some of you are catching on to a potential trap here, which is this, right? In many ways, this feels like a sermon for pre-pandemic church, doesn't it? Back when we were actually fixed in our own rituals, we're not fixed in rituals right now. Back when Sundays could actually become a bit mindless and a bit formulaic for us. You might be thinking that, yes, once upon a time, church was an empty habit for me. But is talking about church as an empty habit the most relevant thing for us to talk about now? <laughs> After all, this is just week three. How empty can our habits be at this point? One of the great things about 
this season that we're all that we're in is that we're all here. Everybody that's here right now is here because you want to be, because you want to be. There is a real and even, I think, kind of a palpable joy in that. At least there, there has been for these last few weeks for me. I'm praying that we'll hold on to that, that joy that comes from everybody being here because they want to be, knowing they could be anywhere else. But here's the other thing, too, right? We're also not all here, are we? We're not all here. As much as this is a season of returns here at Revolution, it's also a season of goodbyes, too. Another consequence of having those habits of church broken is <laughs> that whether they were mindful habits or not, sometimes those habits are the only things that anybody has to tether them to, to what they do, to tether them to church. And with those habits broken, there are people who've come untethered. Not all of us are ready to be here again. Not all of us feel a reason right now to be here again when the rituals are empty and the responsibilities are gone. And I think the psalm speaks to us about that side of the problem, too. I want to be careful here because this is a moment when we can feel and even be hurt by the differences between our culture and the culture of the psalmist situated some 3,000 years ago. For the psalmist, whose community is determined not by choice, but by ethnicity and by family, those who have pulled away from the rituals of worship in the temple are described in exceptionally harsh terms here. He describes them as wicked people, and he accuses them of putting in with thieves and adulterers and liars. He says to them, imagining the words of God, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant in your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. To be as clear as I can be, it would be wildly hurtful <laughs> and unfair to say the same things to those who have felt their ties to church community loosen over the last year, to the extent that the desire to be here and to worship together has dried up for them. In truth, it was almost certainly hurtful <laughs> and unfair for the psalmist to say these things to his neighbors even 3,000 years ago. But I don't want us to lose sight of the next thing the psalmist writes because I think it matters deeply. He writes, again, from God's perspective, when you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. When, I did, when you did these things and I kept silent, when you drifted away from the community of worship and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. What does that mean? What was God exactly like? answer is empty. The answer is empty. God's silence was God's emptiness. There was no meaning to him, no reason behind his commands to anyone. Why did the psalmist's neighbors cast in their lot with those 
that the psalmist calls the wicked, whether or not it's because they delighted in sin the way the psalmist imagines that they did, the ultimate reason that they threw their lot in with the wicked was because there was no clear reason not to do that. God's judgment wasn't raining down in lightning bolts on anybody. Nobody was getting pelted with hailstones after they stole their neighbor's donkey. There was no reward for the righteous rule followers. There was no punishment for the rule ignorers. There was just living. If the mindlessness of the righteous people was simply this tendency to go to the temple on autopilot, the mindlessness of those who stepped away from the rituals was more intentional, if also maybe more pessimistic. And it was this, why be mindful of a God that we can't see or a God that we can't feel? In our own terms, if the ritual of church isn't enough to keep me in church on its own, then what am I missing out on? What I love about this psalm is that no matter which camp you are in, the answer ends up being the same. And it goes back to that long list of things God doesn't need. God doesn't need anything from you. What God wants, what God wants from people in both of the mindless camps is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. What God desires is not our empty obedience or our cynical disobedience. What God desires is our mindfulness of him. That is the real act of worship. The psalmist writes, again, aggressively, Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show my salvation. If we can see through the, the harshness of the psalmist's language, what he says about God is profound and generous and beautiful. Salvation flows from mindfulness. Salvation flows from thanksgiving. It flows from a discovery of who God is. Worship is available for everybody, for anybody. For the rule followers whose habits are empty but who can, if they look up and see him, find life breathed back into their worship. And for the rule ignorers whose habits are empty but who can, if they look up and see him, have worship breathed back into their lives. Back when Matt and I were at that conference, what got us into so much hot water with the, the youth pastors in the room was that we dared to say that the teenagers in their churches might find arrows pointing to God in songs that didn't intend to put those arrows there. That they might find arrows pointing to God in songs that didn't intend to put those arrows there. In other words, if a song is trying to tell the truth about the world— it can resonate with who God is and what God is revealing about himself. And that resonance can draw us to him, can help us to see him more 
clearly can even bring us to humility and to repentance and to gratitude and to worship. But on the other hand, songs, on the other hand, songs that may claim to be Christian, but which offer empty words and offer cheap platitudes in place of sincerity, songs like that can do the opposite. They can lead kids into the right behaviors, but without any real reasons behind them. Matt and I were convinced, I think Matt and I are still convinced, that what we need most is mindfulness when we listen. We need, in other words, to find God because God is real, not because it's good or right to find him. Right now, I, right now, I think we can all rediscover mindfulness when it comes to church. That's really the thing I want to talk about. We have been given this gift of a break in our habits. We've all had this gift of a break in our habits. And we have the chance to come here each week because for the last six days, God has made the sun rise, and he has allowed the sun to set, and we're grateful to him for that. When we sing together right now, we can feel something real in the community of this whole thing. We can wonder and delight again, maybe, maybe in the joy of celebrating the hope that we're starting to taste again in our day-to-day -day lives, maybe. And when it comes to folks who aren't ready to be back here with us yet, which are people I'm thinking about a lot, instead of feeling judgment or frustration or rejection in that, and again, I'm talking to myself, we can trust that the God we worship is still out there, not silent, but revealing himself to us all the time, every day, all the time. Because a God who is real draws people to himself. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show my salvation. Our prayer can be for a new mindfulness in the world. It can be for a new worship, I think, as we rediscover, maybe discover for the first time, a God of wonder, and a God of mercy, and of kindness, and of justice. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. So here are the challenges, I think, for today. There are two. First, have the courage to ask yourself, why am I here? Why am I here? What is the heart behind the ritual of worship? I think those can be really scary questions for anybody, but as you face them, Ask God to reveal himself to you. Where is he in your life? Where is there light for you? What is the sun that rises every morning for you right now? The sun that sets. 
Where is there hope in your life right now? Who is God saying you are to him right now? I think all of those questions are questions that can cultivate that mindfulness in us in this moment when our habits have been broken and we have this chance to step into ritual, uh, to, to the rituals of worship with a new focus and a new passion. And the second chance, that's challenge one. Have the courage to ask yourself, why am I here? Question two, if you are mindful, if we are mindful, the question is what can then flow out of that mindfulness for us? I know that's vague, so let me be more careful. If you are somebody who is taking the bold step of looking for God in your life, and then if you actually find him in your life, what is the right thing to do with that discovery? How can it encourage you? How can it change you? Why might it be good, not just for you, but for other people to bring what you're feeling into the light and share it in this community with other people? Which is just a really, really unnecessarily complicated way of saying, can you worship with us? Can you worship with us? Can you worship with us?